Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. I am so pleased to welcome my new friend Carrie to the episode today. Carrie is a master gardener, a pretty new homesteader, and she's a garden coach for new and aspiring gardeners. Carrie grew up as a nomad as her father's job took her all across the U.S. This is a theme among my guests, and I suspect it's an experience that many of you listening can relate to as well. However, during this childhood of moving about, she found stability in annual visits to her grandparents' farm. Later, as a newlywed, Carrie paused in the Pacific Northwest with her husband. But when infertility and miscarriage brought pain into their lives, Carrie's instinct was to pack up and leave, to run away. But instead, this time she decided to stay, to put down roots, and to find purpose in the land. I am so grateful that Carrie came on today, that she shared her perfect scone and summer jam recipes with us, along with her stories. And I'm so grateful to you, listener, for tuning in. If you're new to the podcast, or even if you're not, you may not know that this podcast has a really robust companion website, thestoriedrecipe.com. Over there, you can find show notes. You can find all of my guest recipes. You can also find a lot of food photography and a lot of photography and styling resources and a little bit more about the story behind this podcast. So I'd like to invite you to head on over there to thestoriedrecipe.com, take a look around, and I'd also invite you to hit subscribe right now to keep up with all of the varied and very exciting and inspiring stories that I get to share this fall. So here we go. Once again, welcome to Carolyn and thank you for being here. Hello. Good morning. Hey, Carrie, how are you? I am just fine. The sun <laughs> is shining. My kids are listening. It's a good day. Are they really? Oh, oh, oh. You just mean like, like doing what you say. <laughs> yeah. I thought for a second there you meant they were listening to this interview and I was like, oh, now I feel stressed. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, I set them up with all of their assignments and they are uh, good to go. Oh, yes. Have you ever been out to Washington? I have. And it was, it would be really easy. I think if I travel for the rest of my life, that Northwest trip will be definitely top three. We went to Olympic National Park and we made our way down to San Francisco. Oh, um, fun. Oh, Carrie. It, fun, fun, fun. It was amazing. And Olympic National Park, it was like, oh, I just remember driving in and there were just, it was everything I wanted it to be. There was these conifers that had just captured the mist, you know, the mist uh -huh. just couldn't escape. And, you know, just the icy, icy blue waters below. And, oh, it was amazing. There is this hidden secret that Washington people have that we like to propagate this stereotype of being doom and gloom mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. But 4th of July mm -hmm. is when summer starts. We have something called January. So mm -hmm. in June, a lot of times we'll get some random rain. Oh. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And it, it's misty in the morning and very, very foggy. And then it burns off by like one o'clock. Oh, and it's okay. bright blue skies. But then from July 4th, when summer starts, mm -hmm. all the way through about the end of September, sometimes if we're lucky into mm. October, we get no rain. Okay. 
Yeah. I mean, yes, it's green here all the time because the, the native mm. plants can handle the dry Oh my gosh, summers. the ferns, the ferns, <laughs> the ferns. Yes. I oh, took so ferns. many photos of ferns. <laughs> and the mosses and yeah, all oh, the trees. Oh, it um, was amazing. It was but so when you great. come to actually having a garden, I know a lot of, so where I live in is Kitsap County. Across the water from Puget Sound is, on the other side of Puget Sound, where I live is Seattle. And the whole Seattle metro. So I'm on the west side. So when you came out to the Olympic National Park, you probably took the Edmonds Kingston Ferry and went right past my house. So we we did not take um, a ferry. We drove over Puget. Oh, Sound, you drove around. I think. Okay. Yes, I know we went over the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. I know okay. we did that that day. Yeah. So the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, when you cross it, you get to Gig Harbor, and that's the edge of Kitsap County. That's the south end of the county. And I live on the north end of the county. But yeah, it's moving here. This county has a bunch of naval bases because it's strategically located. Mm -hmm. Um, Bremerton is on the south end and they have some, like, that's where they fix naval ships. And there's a big shipyard and and there's a few other bases. So a lot of the people around here are naval and Mm -hmm. military families and they're Mm -hmm. transplants from other places. And I'm used to being a transplant too, just because my dad had a job working in the nuclear power industry yeah. and he worked on contracts. So I moved every couple of years and lived all over the country. Yeah. And yeah. you think moving to Washington, you're like, it's green. And I, I wanted a garden mm-hmm. and I thought you just put seeds in the ground, right? And they grow mm. and moving here, it's really dry in the summer and that everything is. dies if you don't water yeah, that is so, that is so interesting. So, okay, Carrie, yes, let's talk about this. Let's talk about gardening because this is a sh- love. We definitely share. Tell me why you love to garden. Mm, that is such a great question. And it's a question that I ask everyone too, because like any passion mm. um, or hobby, you're not going to stick with it when it gets tough if you don't have a good why, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, Oh, goodness. Why do I garden? I garden (laughs) because it connects me with my mom. My dad had a job that took us all over the country. He worked for nuclear power plants. And every time there was a refueling, every time there was a new job, we moved. Mm -hmm. So every, on average, I would say every year and a half, we would move somewhere else. And so I went to a lot of schools and my childhood was all over the west side of the Mississippi. So I've lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Arizona and California and Oregon and Washington and Montana. Wow. In my life. You've absorbed a lot of different cultures. A lot. Yeah. yeah people... I used to say my, my, my doorstep was a lot bigger than other people. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And, you know, for non-Americans, and I think actually sometimes Americans, we don't realize how many different subcultures there are in our own country. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've experienced culture shock in America a number of times mm. in my travels. My longest stretch in one region was from seventh grade through my senior year in high school. We lived in Southern Minnesota mm-hmm. and we live there because most of my family is from Minnesota. The family farm is in Southern Minnesota mm. where my mom grew up and with her nine siblings and wow. my grandma still lives, my dad's mom still mm-hmm. lives in uh, Wisconsin. She's okay. 94, 93. Wow. But she's one of 12 kids on a Wisconsin family farm. Like, wow. So I have very much homestead, old school homestead roots. And yeah. we'll get, I know you asked about homestead. We'll yes, talk about we're that. definitely going to talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so so the, like, I, I moved around forever, but yeah. I always had this sense of home 
in the farms. I had the sense mm. of home when we went back to the family farms. Mm. And my mom always cooked from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a magic mill where she would go to the co-op and get grain and we would process the grain and she would make bread and be the bread lady. And all of us little kids with our little red wagon would take the bread and sticky buns around the neighborhood and sell bread to the neighbors. And this was from place to place you would do Uh this? Yeah, all over. Um, Or like my brother, his story was through the bread money that he he sold. He's six years older than me. Mm -hmm. He made enough money to save up for his first cello. Oh, that's not a cheap, that's not a yeah. Lego set. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think it was a few hundred dollars for the student cello wow. at the time. It was in the wow. mid 80s, early 90s. So like, I definitely had that connection to home cooking mm-hmm. and canning and food co-ops, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, I remember in a few of our houses, we had a garden. Mm-hmm. I remember trying spinach from the garden for the first time when <laughs> I was 12. Mm-hmm. And? <laughs> I really liked it with a little butter cooked in the microwave. <laughs> That's how I had it. Um, Why is that so 80s? <laughs> right? A little butter cooked in the microwave. <laughs> that was me. I'm an 80s kid. Um, so I, I knew I definitely had the, the life of the farm kid, mm. but it was a once removed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It wasn't my experience. It was, mm. I was living through the stories of my mom and my dad. Mm-hmm. And, and, and re like almost, um, <laughs> you know, like Alice falls down the rabbit hole into the story, right? It's, it's like every summer you would kind of fall into your mom and yes. dad's stories by going back yes. to the farm. Uh-huh. Mm. You know, that summer experience of picking berries mm-hmm. is like near and dear to my heart. It mm. is something I, I have to do. It's part of who I am. It's mm. part of my heartbeat. Mm. is foraging for wild berries. Like it's the full American story. My great-grandfather and his brother came over from Germany, right on the border between Germany and France. Mm. So I Mm -hmm. think the German town that he's from, they speak French. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. In that part of Germany. And so he and his brother came over when they were, I think, 19 and 17, right Mm. before World War I broke out. Okay. And then they moved to Southern Minnesota, got there parcels of land, built the houses yeah, and raised the families. And yeah. so it's like, we have that total American, you know, immigrant story. I love that. So for me, yeah. like gardening is it's the roots. It's, mm-hmm. it's being able to slow down and be connected to the earth. Mm. I feel called, like I'm a Christian and, and mm. in my, my religious beliefs, like there's this calling to tend the earth. Mm. And so I feel that need. And I, it really kicked in when I became a mom, mm. like having children, suddenly I wasn't, you know, having desires of being a star singer anymore. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn how to can food again mm. and remake bread. My mom used to make and things that I had kind of lost in my early twenties. Yeah. I wanted my kids to know where their food came from. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess that's my biggest why. Yeah which is beautiful. That's amazing. And to you gardening, I said, like we share this love, but it's possible that you wouldn't even consider me (laughs) a gardener because I actually don't grow food. I grow fruits and vegetables enough to maybe kind of take a few photographs, Uh but really I actually don't get very much sun in my yard. And so it's a extra and a lot of animals. So it's been kind of an exercise in futility and I do more (laughs) 
landscaping, gardening. Uh To you, gardening is very, very closely connected to growing food, which I think is a legitimate definition. It is connected to food, but I also, I really do struggle with growing vegetables and I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm. I grow them, Mm -hmm. but I also, like you have some of my my photos, it's like, well, there's a couple tomatoes there. (laughs) So I don't want to give the impression like I am some guru of vegetables. Mm. Um, I actually grow a lot of flowers. That's mm-hmm. something I stumbled upon and they grow really well for me. And I collect seeds and I swap seeds. And so I'm like, I'll grow that. Sure. Yeah. I'll grow that. Yeah. And, and you, so, you have a specialty for dahlias, don't you? Yeah. I've, that was part of my stumbling. They were, they've always been one of my favorite flowers. Oh, and they're incredible. I love them. And then one of my best friends, she had the obsession. And so she <laughs> shared some with me. And then my neighbor shared some with me. And then I thought, okay, I want to learn more. I'm a very mm. curious person. I like to know yeah. why things are the way they are. Yeah. And so I saw a local flower farmer's sign mm-hmm. at the floral section of the nice grocery store near us. And I thought, yeah. wow, that's really pretty. Mm. So I sent her an email through a contact form and said, hey, can I come help? And she said, yes. Okay. And so I went and I helped and we were in her amazing hundred-year-old, very damp, cold basement mm. in this farmhouse and dividing dahlia tubers. And, and she thanked me for helping by giving me dahlia tubers. What a gift. Right? Yes. Um, so in the last four years, I went from having maybe two or three to now I have planted some like at least 130 dahlias. <laughs> it's a little much. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And now I'm going to move this question up to now because I want listeners to know this about you as soon as possible. Okay. Which is that you coach gardening. Yes. Which is a totally new thing. Like I had never seen that before, maybe 18 months ago. And now I've seen it a couple of times. So what is garden coaching? And Uh, um, what do you offer and how do you, how did you start that? So I have been doing this coaching thing for a long time Mm. because I was the garden nerdy person who would show up at my friend's house and say, Ooh, oh, that's a good thing. You really like that trillium. You want to keep that one. You need to get rid of these blackberry (laughs) vines. And, you know, the foxglove is okay, but if you don't love it, and then how about we take this hydrangea? Mm. Let's propagate it. And so... (laughs) I, and you knew I this would, all from working on your grandparents' farm? Oh, no, no, no. I, I learned it all. I never really worked on my grandparents' mm. farm. It was, like you said, it was just a summer home experience. So we, we would travel back to the Midwest okay. to see them during the summer for a week or two. Okay. So, so how it was, did you learn all this? Yeah. The magic of the internet. <laughs> and applying it to your own garden. Yes. As you had questions, you would just ask the question. And then you, as you absorb this knowledge, you couldn't help but share it with your friends. Yes. Got that is, it. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, as you tried to solve their problems, you found more. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like when when you find that aha passion in your life, mm-hmm. the learning curve is exponential. Mm, totally. Yeah. Like last right. year, I will say right before COVID hit. Mm-hmm. I made that decision of, okay, I want to take this seriously. I want to see if I can turn this into something legit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to become a master gardener in my county. Oh, awesome. 
And so that is my official training is I did complete the Master Gardener program through Kitsap County last year. Oh, wow. Okay. And can you tell people, that's an intense uh, amount of training. Tell people what that entails. Yeah, it's... uh, a program that was started in Washington. Oh, and the I idea didn't know that. Yeah, it started in Puyallup, Washington. And it basically was a program that was started to help farmers ah. um, get information out to them about the soil, about the plants, about the mm-hmm. native things, about water conservation, all this stuff through educated volunteers. Mm-hmm. So training just everyday people to kind of be the filter for the educated folk. Yeah to be an asset to the community and it's spread all over the country. And now it's become these volunteer educators. You'll see them at farmer's markets. You'll see demonstration gardens. Yeah. In our County, they have them actually at libraries. They have regular hours at library at public libraries. Awesome. Which man, if there's an institution I love, it's the public library. (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) Library is amazing. Yeah. So we are trained, basically, I would, I would think that the best way to describe master gardeners is we are there to help you solve the garden problems. Yeah. If there's a garden pest, if there's a weird spot on your hydrangea leaves and you don't know what it means, if you have a new infestation of aphids, if your garden, you put in a bunch of soil and nothing's growing, why? And so we are trained to have access to a bunch of scientifically based information Mm to give educated answers. So it's not based on anecdotal evidence or right. what grandma did. Right. It's based on the science. And then that you, led me to garden it. coaching. Okay. So okay. the best way I describe it is I grow gardeners. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. You grow gardeners. <laughs> I grow gardeners. I am not a landscape designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, yes, I have helped some people mm-hmm. design their landscapes. When I do it, I do it with them. I don't do it for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I teach them about how different plants behave in the garden. I yeah. have a knowledge of plants in my mind so I can help them pick things when they tell me I have shade. I really want a peaceful, neutral palette. Mm-hmm. I want a lot of evergreen. And so mm-hmm. my mind is racing with all of the different resources I have to help them find exactly yeah. what they want. Yeah. What um, do you do when people come to you and don't know what they want? That is a lot of me asking questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I use a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't know what you like, which of these things inspire you the most? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I help people grow bouquets too. That's another thing I do. I call it capsule gardens and it's kind of mm-hmm. like a wardrobe. So instead of growing a whole bunch of, you know, really powerful, big, huge, mm-hmm. well, dahlias. Mm-hmm. And then you can't make a bouquet. I teach people how to grow all the different ingredients that would go into it. Much like if you have a wardrobe, you can't have all really powerful, bright blazers. You have to have, you know, your little black dress. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You have to have all the Mm -hmm. other pieces. And Mm -hmm. so when it comes to flower gardens and cutting gardens, I help people get their filler plants and their little airy plants and make sure they have a balance of things. That is genius. Thank you. Genius. So I'm a garden stylist. That's kind of what I do. (laughs) I love it. I love that. Yeah. And so do you offer... um, I am working on an online education platform to start teaching more people about seed saving and propagation and and just garden design basics. But I also work with individual clients. Um, I had a client, she hired me, she lives in Kansas. And she had a front entry garden that she just never 
ever loved. And she's mm-hmm. lived there for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I can do the work. I just need somebody to point me in the right direction. Right. Yep. 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 And so after a couple of sessions online talking with me and seeing some of the plant selections that I put together, mm-hmm. she was able to fill her garden. And mm-hmm. and it what, what I love the most is what she did is not what I told her to do. Yeah. She used different plants than I suggested, but she used plants that fit into the same kind of role in the garden. Yeah. Yeah. So that it was beautiful all the time. And she's just so excited. She keeps sending me pictures of things when they're in bloom and it just... Oh, it, it makes me so happy. I just think that's, I think that's awesome that you do yeah. that, Carrie. Well, thank you. I think the other thing I do is I give people permission. Mm. Um, when it comes to plants, there's this huge fear of, I'm going to kill it. Mm-mm. Just um, go for it, baby. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I, when people tell me that they have, they don't have a green thumb and that they kill, to, mm. they kill their mm-hmm. plants. And I say, oh, no, 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 you don't have... It's not that you can't keep plants alive. You just haven't killed enough plants yet. (laughs) You need to kill more plants. Because every time you kill a plant, you learn how not to kill it next time. Yeah. And so a lot of of my job, too, as a garden coach, and I feel um, a responsibility here, it's my job to push plants. It's my job to see what they can and cannot do so other people don't have to make the mistakes that I made. I love that. I love that. And you know, the thing is also about a plant, if it's not thriving, if it looks like it's dying, take it out, plop it in somewhere else. And nine times out of 10, it will flourish. Yeah. Because you exactly like you said, you've just figured out, you know, it's just too wet here. And you're really never going to change it. It's like your children, you're never going to change who they are. Like you can amend soil as much as you want. But really, a spot is what it is. And like, sometimes it's best to just move the plant. Yep. That's fact. I love it. I, I, I love moved so many theory. plants. Yes, I, I know. I have too. And it's amazing to see them uh, just take off in other places. So I think it's such a great thing that you're doing. So, Thank and we're you. definitely going to give everybody your information at the end, because I think a lot of people, like I said, have never heard of a garden coach before. And I, I just think it's great. I think it's I I highly recommend it for anyone who's thinking about gardening. And yes, exactly like you said, just feels that fear of I'm going to do it wrong of uh-huh. um, and need and needs permission to just go for it and know where to go. So that's, that's awesome. So um, I love it. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing it. I'm happy for your clients. Good for them. So you don't just garden, but you homestead. And uh-huh. <laughs> this is now unlike garden coaching, I feel like homesteading is a term I hear all the time. My nephew was over here today and I was making your scones, which have you heard me? I've been snacking on them while we've been talking, Carrie. Oh, have you? I have oh, been snacking because one of my kids brought it up and I was like, oh, I'll just take a little bite. And I couldn't stop eating it. It was so good. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so I hope I haven't been rude smacking my lips. If any listeners have heard that, that's me snacking on the scones. <laughs> But my nephew was like, oh, what are you making? I said, I'm getting on an interview. What is she? I said, oh, she's a homesteader. And he goes, what is a homesteader? And I said, that is a really good question because I think of a homesteader as kind of like a gardener on steroids, but I don't really know what a homesteader is exactly. How do you define that? 
This is a personal definition, and I think oh. that's a reason why this is a confusing oh. term. It's so not I'm really not like crazy to not know what this means. No, I don't think so because yeah. you have definitely different levels of homesteaders. Mm-hmm. I would say on one extreme, you have the full-on preppers that would call themselves homesteaders mm. that are off-grid, that are doing everything from scratch. That don't. What did do- you call them? Preppers. Preppers. That's a term for people that are prepping for massive fall off for whatever reason. Oh, like the apocalypse. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, or like, like World War Three or whatever. Yeah. So they have oh, okay. food stocked up in their prepper pantry for three years in case anything happens. And they have a water source and they have solar and they have electrical and they have yeah. all the things they need. Yeah. I know some people that would, that are in that camp that would definitely consider themselves homesteaders. And honestly, that kind of falls in line with more of the pioneer homesteaders. Yeah, right. Totally self-sufficient. Totally self-sufficient. Self-sustaining, self-sufficient, regenerative agriculture, all of those different things, they consider themselves homestead. Mm -hmm. I still go to the grocery store. I try to go to the farmer's market. I'm trying to work on sourcing my meats from local places as much as possible and moving and and making those shifts. Mm -hmm. But to me, what homesteading means is a mindset shift from a place of consumption Mm. to a place of production. Hmm. That it's not all about how I can just go out and get everything easily. Mm. I can work a little bit harder and do it myself. So a homesteader could technically live in an urban area. Absolutely. Uh Absolutely. I have a friend who lives in Bremerton. Her name is Nikki. Her Instagram is urban gnomestead. Mm. And she lives in a little lot, like you would think, little front yard, little backyard. And she has converted all of that space into growing. And she has a little greenhouse and she's got all of these vegetables and she cans and she does everything Mm. in a tiny little spot. I know some people that would consider themselves homesteaders that don't grow anything themselves, Mm. but maybe they source their meats Mm. from a farmer, or maybe they go and spend time working on a farm and glean some of the produce to then save. So, or, or maybe they're just into making sourdough bread. Yeah. You know, just that home cooked thing, that home preservation. So for me, it's like anything that it's about switching that mindset of consumption, I can get it whenever I want to, I'm going to work a little bit harder and I'm going to make it, I'm going to grow it. I'm going to figure it out myself. Hmm. That's my, my take on homesteading. Hmm. So I know how I do make bread. I make sourdough because it's better for my gut than making, Mm -hmm. you know, the yeasted breads. Mm -hmm. Um, I do make pastries Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of canned goods So yeah, I don't know if that's in line with what you had assumed homesteading would be, but that's my take on homesteading. Well, yeah, I think, first of all, thank you for that definition because that really does clarify things. That's something else. It's like, I I shy away from getting a clear definition of this is homesteading or this isn't homesteading. Mm Because I think it's more of a, can you, does this mean something to you? What can you take that word and what can it mean for you? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if part of the definition of homesteading is if it's really a definition of a culture or a subculture. Yes. And the other, Uh, yes, I would. So I often think about the two cultures of homesteading and homeschooling intermixing, intermingling, overlapping. What do you think? 
Yeah, there's some of that. I think there's a there's a desire to be close to home. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it. It's it's a I see it as a counterculture to the mainstream. I'm it's people that like counterculture hmm. that that they want to go against the expectation of the soccer mom, the expectation mm-hmm. that you have to do all of these different things and mm-hmm. let's instead of just being defined by the culture that tells us, let's go back to the old ways where we can do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Everything doesn't have to be done for us. We can do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. So do um, you homeschool? Yes. I haven't always, mm-hmm. but I do homeschool. Well, I did this last year because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And we've decided to continue because it works for our family. But it's not that mm-hmm. I'm against school. Right, and I'm right, not right, somebody right. who's like crazy, you know, extremism. I can't have my kids in school. No, I school's great. <laughs> right, right. But it's the same idea of not just doing something because it's the expected way to do it. Yeah, it's not the only way. And yeah. I, I need to do what's best for my family. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much more out there mm-hmm. than what we're told is there. Or when you're thinking about edible greens, and I'm not a forager of greens. Mm-hmm. I'm learning. It's one of my next things. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's so much food around us mm-hmm. that we don't even know is food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people that in the homestead community that are very much into that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's just people that are about finding ways to do things more like our grandparents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I would say in this, or would you say, would you say in this uh, culture, one of the main values is curiosity? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that this this wouldn't have happened. The homestead community, I don't think would be taking off like it is if it wasn't for the internet and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's allowed for a rather lonely way of living. Mm, To be totally communal. Yes. 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 And it's allowing for people to barter skills and Ah. to live sustainably in that way. And it's, you know, there's conventions popping up all over the country of homesteaders getting together to learn how to do different skills like butchering meat or you know, how to fix fences or mm-hmm. farming skills, but it's not people that are farming, you know, thousand acre or more farms. They right. might have a five acre farm, right. a one acre farm, right? a large backyard. Yeah. yeah. And they just want to have chickens or whatever it is. Yeah. They want to produce more than they consume. Yeah. And yes. So how, how do they do that? Mm. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I think there's so much in our culture that we just kind of cut people off short mm-hmm. and think that they have to fit into one, do one thing. Mm. And it's like, no, the more you start talking to people, everybody has this kind of dynamic story. If you let them tell it. Totally. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I like your podcast for that because mm. you get to hear these stories and, and you get to meet these people and see that they're more than just this one thing. And, yeah. and I'm honored that you invited me on because oh. <laughs> I, I hear other people and I'm just like, I'm not a chef. I, I cook every day, but. Well, and isn't that the thing though? Don't we, I mean, yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you ever heard Letitia Clark. She's, um, she wrote bitter honey. Um, it's a Sardinian cookbook. She was like British. She grew up in the UK and then she moved uh-huh. and she was a professional cook. And then she moved to, um, 
she moved to Italy and she became a home cook and she realized that all her life she had won or all of her career, what she had really wanted was to be a home cook, not a professional cook. Yeah. It's super powerful. And we talked about the difference between being a home cook. She said, um, professional cooks cook for money and Uh home cooks cook for love. Mm, I love that. Wasn't that powerful? I know. Yes. Yes. And so she realized she wanted to go, um, that's what she wanted to do. And she wanted to teach people how to do that. And she felt that the Sardinian way of life, which is a very homesteading way of life, um, was what um, was kind of the ideal for the home cook. So she wrote this cookbook that was meant to just encourage people to live this way of life. I'll send you, it's a, it's a great oh, please episode. Do. I would send love it to that. you. Yeah. And I'm going to link, I'll, I'll link it in this show because I actually am seeing, it's funny because we're talking about homesteading kind of on the West coast of the U S and she's writing a cookbook about Sardinia. It feels totally different, but it really, I think they come from the same place. Um, Yeah. It's a similar heartbeat. Yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Well, I feel like we've really, really started to explore homesteading here, (laughs) which I enjoyed. (laughs) And I'm curious to hear what other people think about it, because like I I said, this is just my definition. So when you talked about moving to where you live and that you, um, you do homestead, Mm -hmm. you said this line, it, it was said beautifully, but it kind of broke my heart too. You said, riddled with infertility and miscarriage, I began mm-hmm. finding purpose in the land. So I first, if you're not, it's totally fine. But are you willing to share the story about your infertility and yeah, miscarriage? I, okay. I'm very open with it. Mm-hmm. It's I've had time to heal, mm-hmm. uh, which I think anyone going through it, just time is your friend. Mm-hmm. That you need time to process and time to just move through the pain to get to that point of healing. Um, But I have had five miscarriages in my life. Um, And then I have three babies that I get to hold and love and they grow. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first ones, my first pregnancy, I was 24. Mm -hmm. It was, or 25. It was a year after we got married. You know, you just get married and you get pregnant. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm having a baby. Mm -hmm. And so the day you find out, it's like you're planning their their whole life. Mm -hmm. And it was really strange. I went to the the doctor's office and to get the test. I'd never been pregnant. I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And this doctor, it was really strange. She told me in the thing, she's like, now just so you know, about one third of early pregnancies and in miscarriage. Mm. and I'm sure that's not normal for most people. And I don't know that she's ever said that to anyone else. And it was one of those, was God preparing me for that? I don't know. Mm. Um, But a week later, I miscarried that first pregnancy. Mm. And then a month later, I got pregnant again. Okay. And then that one, I got to about, uh, goodness, that one was 10 or 11 weeks. Mm-hmm. And that one was really hard because I went in and had an ultrasound and they did see a very slow heartbeat. Okay. And I just prayed and prayed and prayed. They mm-hmm. said, come back in a week. It's not looking good. Come back in a week. Mm-hmm. And when I went back in a week, there was no heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then suddenly it's my world crumbled. Mm-hmm. At the time, this was when I was teaching. This was when I was a wedding photographer and my husband and I had only been married for a couple of years and it was really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And then a year later I got pregnant again mm-hmm. and that one I lost 
at about seven weeks. Oh, um, and sadly, when it comes to fertility, and this is something I never quite understood, you don't qualify for, for, for fertility testing or have insurance cover yeah. it unless it's, yeah. unless you have three miscarriages in a row. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, Hey, suddenly I qualified. Um, so I went to the reproductive medicine mm-hmm. and they did all of these tests, very invasive, mm-hmm. lots of different things that still kind of haunt me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't been, uh, formally, uh, diagnosed with PTSD from my, um, stuff, but it has been suggested by a number of doctors that mm-hmm. I have extreme trauma mm-hmm. from this, which isn't surprising. Yeah. Um, so we went through the fertility treatment and I took hormones that made me crazy. And then there was, so my husband and I are wedding photographers. We were in a hotel room getting ready to go to a wedding. And I was nuts, like hopped up on hormones, crazy nuts. Yeah. And it was we had this moment. We were so mad at each other. And he looks at me, he goes, Carrie, I'm sorry, but I can't have you taking these hormones. They're making you crazy. Like, like you're not yourself. You're yeah. doing things. It's not good for a marriage. <clears throat> we just need to take a break. Yeah. And I told him, I said, I was so afraid you were going to be mad at me if I asked you if I could stop taking them because it was cool. making me who I was. So like we had this total coming yeah. together where we had to stop. Yeah. And so we stopped taking the hormones. Yeah. And then a month later I got pregnant again mm-hmm. and went into the reproductive medicine. And the prayer was just simply, please, dear God, let there be a heartbeat. Yeah. And the doc did the ultrasound and, um, it's the early kind. So it's a little bit more invasive Yeah, mm-hmm. and he, uh, got the, uh, you know, found the baby strong heartbeat. I was so excited, looked at Jason. We were just, just, ah, peace and joy. And we got almost done with the whole exam and he moved the wand ever so slightly. And he said, oh, well, we should measure this one too. Oh, he said, oh. No, what? He said, you're having twins. I'm like, no, really? And then all the color drained out of my husband's face. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we, and then the, the, like, wow. he oh and I are word. having this you oh, know, silent actually dialogue. in like tears over here. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Jason and I are in this silent dialogue of just like, oh my goodness, like this is happening. Oh. <gasps> And then you have this fertility guy and the nurse are like, oh my goodness, these are natural twins. They weren't doing anything. Like, wow, we don't see spontaneous twins very often. Wow. Uh, yeah. So mm. I had that pregnancy and uh, my twins, my boys were healthy and strong and they grew and grew. And then their birth was traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was induced at 38 weeks and one of them uh, came the normal way. And then the other one went into distress and I had a crash Mm. Mm C-section. So my, my birth for them was very traumatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then the story keeps going. And then about a year later, I got pregnant again and I was terrified, Mm -hmm. terrified of losing the baby. Um, Like Mm -hmm. every day, every single day, just so much stress, so much stress. Mm -hmm. And that was my daughter Mm -hmm. um, who's now six, feisty little girl. Um, and I will say (laughs) the smarty pants. Yeah. Before I had her, I remember having just this, I don't know, I say vision in my mind, just this image of my twin boys walking away from me, holding a hand of a little sister between them. 
And that was well before my daughter was even on the radar. Wow. And um, I also thought um, my boys, so my husband is half Japanese Mm. and my boys have bright blue eyes and lighter hair. They look very much like me. Mm. And I thought in this, in this vision I had of this little girl with dark, thick hair and a more Asian. And I'm like, and she's going to get my diva streak. (laughs) And fortunately I was very accurate in that. Um, We joke in our family that we all know who the alpha is, but she's not allowed to know it. (laughs) Like that little girl has huge personality. And so, yeah, she, she came so easily. I, at the hospital, she, I wasn't even uh, registered. I didn't have an IV. They didn't believe me. They were just checking me to make sure I was in labor. And I'm like, um, she's coming now. And so she came out in like an hour and a half. Wow. Just, she was ready. Um, and I thought, that's it. That's my family. I, I'm so happy. And then about a year later, I got pregnant again. Mm. And I lost that one. Mm. And a month after that one, I got pregnant again. Mm. And that one was, I went for the ultrasound at about 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. And my uterus was empty. Okay. There was just nothing. Mm. And I just sat there in the car by myself, just bawling my eyes out. Mm. And I looked, I went home and I talked to my husband and I was like, Jason, I can't. Like, I need to not stress every single month that I am waiting for my period to start. Yeah. Am I pregnant? Yeah. Every single month. It was just terror. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we made the decision that we were done Mm -hmm. and made sure that won't happen. And I'll be honest, I still, like my husband went in and had a procedure and I still sometimes, when I'm a few days late, start going back into the place of am I pregnant and I have to talk to him and just like carry the chances of being pregnant are astronomically low. Mm. Just, you're not pregnant. It's okay. And so like, I'm still processing. I still go through it. My boys are nine. My daughter is almost seven. Like, mm-hmm. it's not gone. It's a part of who I am. It's my story. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, and you move through it. It's it's yeah. the lens I live my life through. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Or I I remember. Okay, I might cry on this one. Um, I was. It was right after I lost my last child, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine it was a few months later. Friends of mine had had a baby. Yeah. And they put the baby in my arms. Mm. And it was, it was just too much. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, she's beautiful. Thank you for allowing me this, but this hurts. Yeah. And I didn't tell them that. Like, I just had the moment and I had my little silent pain. Yeah. And I get, cause that it wasn't about me in that moment. It was right. the rejoicing of their child. Right. Right. Um, Right. But little things trigger. And so it's like for anyone yeah. listening, if you're going through it, just allow yourself to feel those moments. Yeah. And yeah. they're going to surprise you and they're going to hurt and be gut-wrenching, yeah. but just you'll get through it. Yes. And I think it reminds us of the value of a human life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I remember, and I still hear young women talking about, well, I'm going to have this many kids and I hope yeah. I have this one. And for me, my story very quickly was um, motherhood is not a choice. 
Yeah. Motherhood is is a blessing and a gift and every single child. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm the best mom who always keeps my voice down. Um, yeah. <laughs> but definitely having those experiences and knowing that yeah. I yeah. still feel like I should have more in my arms. Like, yeah. no, my children are, they're, they're gold. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have peace in, in the thought, like the biggest calming thing for me is knowing that when I go to heaven, my five children are going to introduce me to my savior. Mm. And like, like that to me is the most beautiful and mm. healing and uh. mm. Yeah. So that's my story. They will not come to you, but you will go to them. I will go to them. And so Mm -hmm. then the final part of your question was, and finding purpose in the land after the the last miscarriage, Mm -hmm. my, my default is to move. Mm, My default is to start over because Mm. I moved every couple of years Mm -hmm. and we lived in our home for about three years when I lost the last ones mm-hmm. and I just wanted to go, we started talking to a realtor. I started mm-hmm. having friends over, help me pack my house. Like I was ready to leave. Yeah. And for some reason we were called to stay mm-hmm. and I had started seeing some of these homestead people on the internet and YouTube and thought, what the heck is that? Kind of mm-hmm. what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I had these sweet little babies. Um, my boys were about three and my daughter was one. And I thought, what if we got chickens? Hmm. If I got chickens, I couldn't leave. Mm. And so getting a little flock of birds and building them a coop meant that we had to stay here. Hmm. And I had to plant roots. Mm. And so the name Kitsap Roots for me very much came out of, it came out of me needing a home. Mm -hmm. It came out of me needing a place Mm -hmm. that I could put my roots down, that they Mm -hmm. weren't me following other people around the country. Mm -hmm. It was about me making that choice and decision of this is my home. These Mm -hmm. are my roots. Mm -hmm. And the more I learn, the deeper they're going to go. And so Kids Up Roots came out of that place of needing to have my own identity in the land. Mm. And it's done it for you. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 going okay. Mm. Oh. You do you have a desire still to move or leave? Like, does that still become your instinct, or do you desire now to just root deeper? Um, I still have wanderlust. Yeah, I still love to travel, and um, from the day I met my husband, we've had this dream of getting in an RV and going from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, I want that to happen for you so badly. <laughs> right? I do too. Oh, yeah. If anybody wants to help me fund the RV, you can hire me as your garden coach and the RV yes. is on my dream board. <laughs> and if I make enough money, I'm buying an RV. Um, and I even thought it'd be really fun to take our story on the road and, yes. you know, work at farms and meet different people and, you know, share this knowledge and the skill across the country and tell the story of American homesteaders. Totally. That would be my future dream. Totally. Um, so, yeah. So for us, it's, I think we're going to stay put. Like we love our home. We love, mm-hmm. like I pinch myself where I live. Our, we have one acre. 
And it is on a really nice neighborhood street, like really nice. Mm. Uh, but we got in shortly after the crash. We bought our house oh, in 2013. Okay. And it was a tiny little house on a really beautiful plot of land. Yeah. Um, and then across the street is Puget Sound. Oh, so Carrie, that's unbelievable. There's trees all around my house. I can't see Puget Sound, but I can hear the seals barking when they're on the beach. Okay. And I hear the the ships rumbling as they go by. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because of our neighborhood tract that we're on, we have rights to beach access. So I have access to the beach whenever I want it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kids, my kids get to grow up knowing what a gooey duck is. Now, I like, don't know what a gooey duck is. <laughs> so a gooey duck is a type of giant clam. Oh, um, the sh- it looks like a razor clam. The mm-hmm. shell is about mm, eight inches long, mm. and um, they have a siphon. They dig really deep. They dig down three or four feet into the, oh. into the tides, and then they have a siphon that reaches all the way up to the surface. Okay, and and feeds up there. So um, during the summertime, like you think of neighborhood block parties, yeah. Usually they're barbecues and different things. Well, mine is, yeah. mine is a barbecue, but we go down to the beach and dig up gooey duck and then wow. fry the gooey duck and have a big fish fry. Um, wow. And it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. So what you do is you take my na- I've never, we don't have one. My neighbors have one. It, you take it like a giant metal drum that's about mm, three feet across, mm. about two feet tall. Mm-hmm. It's like a giant clam gun, basically. Mm-hmm. And you get three or four guys on it and they jump on it around the spot where the gooey duck is. Cause you can tell where the siphon is coming up to the sand, up through the sand. Okay. So you put this thing down and you pound it down into the ground and then you take shovels and you start shoveling out sand. And then you pound it down and lower to hold the sand and the water out. And you dig down farther and you have to dig down like four feet to get oh. to where the clam is at the bottom. Oh, wow. It's fantastically crazy. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm looking. Oh, you're looking at it. It comes out of the shell. Yeah, you cut it out of the shell. Oh, the the, the siphon. Yes, the siphon yeah. comes out. Yeah, they're very odd looking. They're very weird looking. <laughs> I'm kind of grossed out by it a little bit. Yeah. If anybody wants a giggle, go watch um, Dirty Jobs uh, Micro. <laughs> he does an episode in in Washington digging gooey duck, and you can only imagine the type of references he makes. <laughs> I can't imagine if anybody if wants to do know. a Google, you'll imagine also. Yes. You'll understand if you do a Google search of Gooey Duck. Um, this is a family friendly show. So we'll stop here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Do a Google. Wow. That's amazing. So I love that my kids get to go down to the tide pools and we find little fish and we find shrimp and we find crab and, mm. and look at, you know, the tide coming in or going out. Like, uh, it's it's one of those things that's like, I don't live in the most conveniently located spots, but if my only complaint about my home is I have to travel a little bit for, farther for convenience, yeah, I'll do it. And I think that's also kind of played into my homestead journey is we couldn't just go to the Korean barbecue place on Aurora in Seattle. So we need to make it ourselves. Mm. It's a quiet life. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good life. Yeah, it sounds really attractive right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
it's not glamorous. It's a lot of sweat and hard work, but then you have the moments where you're harvesting beans with your daughter and snacking on stuff. And like, that's pretty special. Mm. Or this morning when, before this interview, I thought, okay, if she's going to ask me about this recipe. I better go make it again and make sure I remember what I did and all that. So I went out this morning, I picked blackberries with the kids before the sun got too hot. I made the scones in my kitchen. I used the jam that I made last week. Mm. And so it was just one of those quiet moments. And I almost started crying this morning, picking berries with them because that to me is, that's my mom. That's what I did with my mom. And now passing it on to them is, yeah, it's amazing. That's great. Okay. So can we talk about these scones? Yeah, let's talk about it. I want to, I'm going to, we're going to wrap it up with the scones. So, um, so first of all, first of all, I don't know what the disconnect was. I just saw mixed berry scones and I didn't realize until too late that it was like a jam Uh, and a scone that you were giving me. So I didn't, I didn't make the jam. I'm sorry to say. But But the scones were still good. The scones were amazing. Oh, good. Talk about those in a second. (laughs) I guess they're so good. (laughs) But um, first, I do want to I do want to ask a couple questions about the jam, though, because um, I have only made jam once before and it was like, "Mm, okay, it wasn't great. Uh Um, So my first question is just because just because berries can be so expensive, Uh uh, particularly at certain times of the year, I'm curious if you can use frozen berries. Yes. You can. Absolutely. Okay. I forage like a beast during okay. the summertime for berries. Yeah. And I, I fill as many gallon bags of berries as I possibly can. Okay. And now it's a race between how many I can pick before my kids eat them. Yes. Right. Um, so like my average is about nine gallons of blackberries in the freezer. What? Yeah. Wow. Well, they grow wild here and they're just invasive and they're huge. And so I pick as many as I can. Yeah. And it's, then, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's almost like seeing, I mean, what would it be like seeing, it, it's like a big deal if we see a berry bush around here. Oh, really? Yeah. And they're very, 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 very expensive fresh. Mm. Yeah. See, that's one thing that grows very well in the Pacific Northwest is wild okay. berries. Okay. Um, and so some of the ones that I reference in the in the recipe, there's thimble berries and there's salmon berries, which are both native to the Pacific Northwest. Um, you'll never see them in a, in a store. You might find them really expensive online, but like a thimble berry, it, it looks like a thimble. Uh-huh. Like it has a raspberry type shape and a hollow center, okay. um, a very smooth outside, but the fruit is so delicate. Basically, once you pull it off, it, it'll decay in the matter of like a day or two. Okay. And they're wow. so delicate that they will not transport. Oh. So that's one that is a native forage. Or the salmon berries, they look like raspberries, but they're more of a yellowish, orangish salmon color. I um, see. Not a sweet, you know, another native berry. And we just have so many of these. And so in early summer, before all of the big blackberries kick in, the kids and I go on an adventure where we scout and look for, we forage for these berries and we'll maybe get three or four cups of a mix of different things. Okay. And so that's what I made the jam for this scone recipe originally was a mixture of all these wild berries Um, and making the recipe this way. So it's different if you're making a jam 
for a small batch Mm -hmm. versus if you're making jam for like a canning session. Yeah. And the idea is basically just to macerate the berries and cook them down. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not more complicated than that. Um, And the advantage of doing a small batch is that you don't have to have the sugar necessary to get it that you need for canning. Because with canning, you have to have the sugar content to certain ratio to get the gelling point and to get everything else. And I'm not a canning expert, but I like the idea of doing a quick pan jam, little little sauce pan jam, is that you can truly just make it according to your taste. Uh, Like if you like a little tart, add a little um, orange zest or a little orange juice to it or add your favorite liquor to it to add a little bit of that kind of spice to it or you know, lemon zest or add a little bit of um, herbs to it. You could, you know, you can be really, really creative. Yeah. And yet even like this, even with a small batch, you still stay, it can last for a couple months. It's not like you have to eat it within days. No, because it is cooked down and it has that sugar in it. And when, if you add a little bit of acid to it, that will also help with the preservation. Yeah. Okay. So that's what the lemon, the lemon juice helps with that. Okay. That makes sense. And then just describe, because for one, people aren't going to see this recipe, but This is very interesting to me, this way of testing um, when it's done. It's not based on a temperature. Can you explain your method for testing when it's done, the jam? Yeah. So this is something that I've learned from other people as well. You take a a plate and you put it in the freezer um, or you take a spoon. You can do it with a spoon as well. And you put it in the freezer, get it really, really cold. And then you dip it in the hot jam and you run your finger across it. And what you're looking for is that it will leave a clean streak, a clean path where your finger went through. Mm. And if it, it leans, won't move back, it won't fill back in or have jagged edges to it. Mm. And that means that it has gelled mm-hmm. and it's thick enough. Mm-hmm. Um, Got it. So. Okay. Okay. Well, now let's move to these perfect scones. These are perfect. Oh, wow. I mean, really perfect. (laughs) Yay. I did a number of tests and I will say this one was based on somebody that I trust, uh, a local Seattle chef called Tom Douglas. This was my tweaked version of his scone. This was perfect. It kind of had layers to the point that all I had to do was pull and it like perfectly came apart in half, you know, it had that like crisp on the outside, but so soft and tender in the inside. Yes. Thank you for this recipe. This will become our go-to for sure. For sure. Oh, I'm Um, so happy. Yay. I am too. Thank you. (laughs) It does beg the question though, like just like homesteading, you've brought up biscuits, you've brought up shortcakes. What? is a scone. How do you define a scone? Oh goodness. Okay. So for me, a scone has a little bit more of a, it's a little bit denser than a biscuit. Yep. Like a heft. Mm -hmm. It has a little more heft to it. I know a lot of scones tend to be really dry and crumbly Mm -hmm. and that's not my favorite. No, no. This one is very moist. Mm -hmm. I like the moisture content in this. Mm -hmm. Um, Another difference I find between how I would make this as a biscuit versus a scone. Because quite frankly, if you have somebody who looks at this recipe and makes scones and is, you know, or makes biscuits, they're going to probably call me out and be like, lady, this is a biscuit recipe. Mm, okay, why? Um, because I'm using buttermilk. Uh, dun, that, dun, dun. Exactly. That was my, that, okay, but, but I am curious about that. I've never seen a recipe with buttermilk in a scone recipe. Yeah, so the the buttermilk is definitely a, a southern thing. 
Ah. Uh, Southerners had a lot of buttermilk in their diets Mm -hmm. and a lot of animal fats and different things. And so you'll have biscuits in the South. They'll call for buttermilk and the addition of baking soda to Mm. help activate that, um, the acid in the buttermilk. Whereas in the North, they had more cream and eggs and different things. And so the people that were in more in the North had more of these more English style scones Ah. that use the cream and have that denser texture to them given to them by the cream or the egg. Got it. But both recipes really come from the European shortcake. Ah. And it's just how families over time have tweaked it because it's the same recipe. It's flour with a little bit of leavener and a salt. And then you add, cut in your fat or you melt the fat and then you blend it in and you have a drop biscuit or- you know, you use the cream or you use milk or you use buttermilk. It's all the same concept. It's just a matter of construction. So when we talk about shortcut biscuits and scones, we're not just saying they're cousins. They're like siblings. They're really close. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've made all of them and they're all very much similar. Yeah. Um, I think one other difference between my recipe and a true um, biscuit recipe is the the size that I um, say to cut the butter into. Mm Mm-hmm. Most biscuits, you want pea-sized butter. Mm-hmm. And doing that size of butter will give you that nice, clean striation so you get those really flaky layers. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in the, the directions I have, it's to get a more of a coarse cornmeal texture. Mm-hmm. And that coarser texture of mix, cutting the butter in finer will give you more of a, that fluffy, creamy, a slightly denser, but not, you know, we're not making a doorstop. Yeah. It still has a little bit of lightness to it. Um, Yes. I think that's what I like. I think that's what I like. And if anybody wants to learn how to garden. I can teach you. Yes. And Carrie, I have to tell you, I've been looking at your website. It's beautiful. Your website is beautiful and super helpful. And it really does show people what I, I just, I, it's so professional. You know, Um, yeah, it really shows people what you offer and um, this whole idea of capsule gardening. I've never heard of this. Well, that was something I came up with. So you wouldn't have heard it somewhere else. Uh, It's genius. And like the way that it's presented on your website is so exciting. Um, So I really encourage people to look at that. So please tell everyone where they can find you um, online, social media, everything. Yeah. Um, My website is kitsaproots.life. Um, Kitsap is K-I-T-S-A-P. And then roots. That's yep. normal. Um, and then I do have a fledgling YouTube channel, also Kitsap Roots on Instagram. I tried to get Kitsap Roots as my, my name, but I messed up and I locked it. So my handle on Instagram is my Kitsap Roots. Oh, is that what happened? Yep, that's Stupid what happened. Stupid Instagram. <laughs> Silly stuff. Wonderful. So yes, I'm on, on, I have a Facebook page. You can find me there sometimes, or you can contact me on my, on my website and fill out forms and I will get back to you. Ask me questions. I am here to help. Absolutely. Okay. And I will share all of that information in the show notes. Um, your website really is amazing. So I do encourage everyone to reach out to you. Um, I think the coaching that you offer is incredible and just a wonderful, wonderful value. The number of days and years of joy you can get from a garden 
um, from just like a, a very, very reasonably priced 30 to 60 minute phone call with you, the, the ratio, the trade-off is incredible, Carrie. I'm, I'm there to help pay, people save hours and days mm-hmm. and years off of their gardening journey. Mm-hmm. Let's get it right the first time. That's what I do. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was my honor. All right. Take care, Carrie. Okay. All right. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find all of Carolyn's information and these really delicious scone and jam recipes, plus lots of photos, of course, over at thestoriedrecipe.com. Next week, we'll hear from Shama, a food writer who recently presented a paper at the very prestigious Oxford Symposium on Food. Shama wrote about the concept of authentic cuisines and why she finds that term problematic. Shama specializes in what she calls Silk Road cuisine, which is how she sums up the Afghani, Pakistani, and Persian influences in her cooking. She's a wonderful guest. She shares from an academic and a deeply personal perspective. I already can't wait to share it with you, and I hope you will subscribe right now to catch that episode. In the meantime, thank you for listening and have a great week, my friends. Thank you.